You can have a seat this morning. And if you've got, speaking of educators, if you've got a child in the room who is third grade or under, and you'd like them to go to an educator down the hall who's going to teach their lesson this morning as we move into our sermon. The webs are in the back of the room with the Blue Redeemer kids shirts on there. You can follow them down the hall um, as they open up the scriptures together, and we do as well here in the worship center. Uh, if you're new with us or a guest, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you've joined us. Uh, when you came in, you should have found a card somewhere on a seat around you that has a place for some information about yourself on one side and a place for prayer requests on the other. Uh, if you do want to leave some information with us or leave a prayer request behind, you can place it in that box at the kiosk in the back of the room. And we would love to just reach out to you, share with you a little bit about our church, and then pray with you about any needs in your life. If you're online or you're here in person and you want to do that electronically, you can find that same form if you scan the QR code on a seat back behind you, or in front of you, I'm sorry. Uh, you can scan that QR code. You can find the, the place to leave some information and submit prayer requests in electronic form on the homepage of our website as well. So... Uh, that said, if you've got a Bible this morning, turn to Psalm 72 is where we're going to be as we continue our series that we're calling Exhale this summer as we spent the entire summer working through some selected psalms. And this morning we come turn to Psalm 72, which is the final psalm in what uh, has, has been called Book 2 of the Psalms. The Psalms have five books and Book 2 is the end of it in Psalm 72 that we're going to take a look at this morning. So we'll pick up reading in verse 1, read down through verse 20 together. If you don't have it in front of you, whether on paper or on a screen, you can follow along on the screen behind me as we read it together today. Psalm 72, beginning in verse 1, reads this as follows. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from river, from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All the nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be an abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon, and pe may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, 
are ended. This is God's word. You know, we live in a cultural era in which there is a passionate quest for justice. We've seen it emerge over the course of the last, really, century through all sorts of movements within our culture. From the civil rights movement of the 1960s all the way through the modern era and movements that are seeking to carry forward that same type of pursuit for what they would call justice. We live in a world that is inundated with this conversation about justice. We're constantly inhaling it on, 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 on mainstream news broadcasts, on internet articles that we may read. And because we're constantly inhaling this cultural quest for justice, it is vital that we learn to exhale a biblical perspective on justice so that we don't take everything that the culture perpetuates as justice, hook, line, and sinker. So this morning, I want us to spend some time in Psalm 72 trying to get a picture of what the psalmist here in this context says about biblical justice. Because Psalm 72 gives us a perspective on what I would call true justice, what it is, what it does, and introduces us to the one who does true justice. So this morning, that's where we're going to be and what we're going to be talking about. So put your seatbelts on because it might be a bumpy ride, okay? Because in, so we pick up in Psalm 72, first of all, looking at what is true justice. And I believe the text tells us this, that the psalmist says true justice is God's justice. True justice is God's justice. Out of the gate, we recognize that this psalm is a prayer. It's a prayer of petition. It's a prayer asking God to grant the king his justice and his righteousness. As one commentator writes, he says, The final poem of book two of the Psalms is a kingship psalm or a royal psalm pertaining to the king. And it's a prayer for the newly anointed king of Israel. Indeed, it is best seen as a prayer given in connection with the king's inauguration, asking God to give the king a sense of justice for the people that he's ruling. Now that word justice, it shows up several times in the passage, particularly concentrated in verses 1 to 4. That word is translated from a Hebrew word, which was in the original text pronounced mishpat, which means to judge or to render a verdict regarding what is right and just in a particular case, in a particular instance, or a particular circumstance. So he's praying that God would give the king the wisdom that he needs to exercise judgments, to make judgments that are right, that are true, in a variety of different circumstances and cases. Now the word righteousness is translated from a Hebrew word sirak, which means rightness or an ethical moral standard which conforms to the word and to the will of God. And so what you have here when these, listen, these two words show up so frequently together in the Old Testament. In the Psalms and the prophets, they're kind of like the left hand and the right hand, okay? They go together, almost synonymously working in tandem with one another. And what you have here in Psalm 72 is a request by the psalmist on behalf of the newly anointed and appointed king of Israel that God would give him the capacity to issue judgments and verdicts 
about the proper action in a given circumstance that conforms to God's moral standards that have been revealed by His will in His Word. So that the king would be able to exercise judgment that is right, that is true, that is accordance with God's standard as it's been revealed by His will spoken through His prophets in His Word. And I want you to notice something in verse 1 of the text. As the psalmist makes this petition, he asks God, God, would you give the king your justice? Would you give the king your righteousness? Right? That's a possessive pronoun. Okay? For you grammar nerds. Okay? It's a possessive pronoun, which means justice and righteousness belonging to God Himself. So the psalmist is praying that the king would reflect the right rulings of God during his reign. As another commentator put it, by ruling with justice, the king would reflect the very character of God himself. These right rulings, these verdicts in various circumstances that conform to the right standards of God's will, right rulings, what I'm calling from now on, these right rulings... Right would be a reflection of the very character, the nature of God Himself. And they would take a particular shape, church. In verses 2 to 4 and verses 12 to 14, we find the shape of those right rulings. And we're going to get to what, those, what that is here in a moment. But, but, but by way of introduction, let me just say this. This means that the justice and righteousness outlined in this passage, it belongs to God. So no matter what we find... As we work our way through this text, we can't look at it and say, that's not justice. Because it belongs to God Himself. It also means that we just can't make up whatever we would like to conceive and think that right standards are based upon our upbringing and measured against, uh, measured, measured justice against our own standards because the standard belongs to God Himself. Justice and righteousness belong to Him and He's the standard by which they are measured. So these right rulings take a particular shape, which we'll see here in a moment. But these right rulings, they also produce a particular outcome. In verses 5 to 11 and 15 to 17, we find the outcome of those right rulings that the king would exercise as the anointed and appointed representative, the royal son. It's another way of referring to the king, the anointed and appointed representative of God. And listen, I want to tell you something. We'll see this in a moment, too, that we're going to be hard-pressed to find all these outcomes in any Old Testament king. Okay? But just true justice is God's justice. It belongs to Him. Everything is measured against that standard, not the one that we concoct or conceive of for ourselves. So what does this text teach us about God's justice? Here's what I... Let me see if I can say say it this way. God's justice is both retributive and restorative. It's retributive and restorative. It has two, it's like two sides of a coin. Now, retributive justice, let me say, say a little word about that. Retributive justice has to do with right rulings or verdicts regarding punishment for evil. Okay? Punishment for evil. In verse 5, look at what we read. We read, may they fear you, 
May they fear who? Who is the you, the king that the psalmist is praying for who would exercise God's justice? May they fear the king as the anointed and appointed representative of God dispensing his justice. Who is the they in verse 5? The closest antecedent to that pronoun, for those of you grammar geeks in the room like me, right? the closest reference point to that is back in verse 4, and it's the oppressor. Right? May they, the, the ones whose actions and activities bring about oppression of people, may they fear you, King, because you are exercising the justice of God. And the, when God's justice is exercised, what does verse 4 tell us? That the oppressor would be crushed. And so may those whose activities and actions bring about oppression of people, may they live in perpetual fear all the days of their lives, as long as the sun endures. Do you read that in verse 5? As long as the sun endures, may they live in fear of the consequences of their actions because they know there's such a thing as retributive justice toward those who do evil. There is punishment, right? That you do the crime, you do the time. That's, that's retributive justice. And we're familiar with retributive justice in our context because of our experience with the judicial system in our nation. Some of you may have served in the judicial system or the law enforcement agencies of our nation. Some of you may have been, had the civic privilege of being called for jury duty and served on a jury. I served on a jury in Dallas County about 15 years ago in a manslaughter trial. One of the toughest things I ever did with a teenager who was the defendant. Right? So maybe you're familiar with it because of that. Or maybe you're familiar with it because you watch Law and Order. Okay? Regardless, you're familiar with retributive justice. Maybe you're familiar with it because you're a parent. Right? And your kids experience retributive justice whenever they act out of bounds. I had a kid run up to me this morning. A little kid. I don't know why he felt compelled to share this with me, but he said, yesterday was the worst day of my life. <laughs> and I said, well, tell me why. He, so he proceeded to tell me where they went and what they did and what he did that brought down the wrath of his parents upon him. And his parents took him home, said, we're never going back to that place again. And how angry they were. Retributive justice fell. Right? That's retributive justice. Now, we're less familiar with the concept of restorative justice. But in verses 2 to 4, the psalmist asked that the king's right rulings, his right rulings would involve judging your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Defending the cause of the poor of the people and giving deliverance to the children of the needy. In verses 12 to 14, the psalmist says that the reason for the far-reaching, expansive rule of this king in his reign would be his deliverance of the needy when they call, the poor and him who has no helper, his pity on the weak and the needy, saving the lives of those in need, his redeeming them from oppression and violence, and the value he places on their lives because their blood is precious in his sight. Now, if the poor in this context are those who have been oppressed and are victims of violence, those in need and their children, those who have no one to help them, they have no advocate, they have no one to speak on their behalf, they have no one who will stand up for them, the weak 
then it doesn't make sense. The justice the king is to exercise is the right ruling of punishment on them, but the right ruling of protection and provision for them. And this is restorative justice. Restorative justice that brings about what the psalmist describes in verse 7 as the flourishing of the righteous. The, The oppressor lives in fear because of the justice of the king. But the righteous are flourishing under the exercising of the kings of God's justice through the rule of the king. Because he's delivering, he's rescuing, he's redeeming, he's caring for those who are in need. Now the Bible's concept of restorative justice, I believe, is unique. And that's one of the reasons why we're not as familiar with it. And the Bible's concept of restorative justice, listen church, it cuts against the grain of the division within our, of the the partisan division within our culture, right? Because if you were raised in a conservative home, you probably heard about one side of justice. You probably heard about those who experience retributive justice, right? You do the crime, you do the time, like we said before. Or, and what you heard about the poor oftentimes, perhaps in a very, very staunch conservative home, was that you learn people are poor because they are lazy. And that to help the poor too much is to enable them. And so we don't help the poor. But on the liberal side of things, if you were raised in a liberal home, you perhaps heard that the poor are poor because of systems and systematic issues. And the only way to bring people out of poverty is through setting up government programs. But I want you to know that when you open the Bible, the Bible It doesn't lean so far to your right, okay? Or so far to your left that it also doesn't encompass some of the perspectives of the other. When you open the Bible and you read it honestly, it shoots holes both in the the incompleteness of the conservative and liberal perspectives and it reveals their deficiencies and flaws in both camps. Here's why. Because the Proverbs, listen, to the liberal perspective, the Proverbs speak of the sluggard who refuses to work. And then Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 says, if you don't work, you don't what? Eat, right? That that's on you. That's a personal responsibility, a character flaw, that if you refuse to work, then your lack of food is on you and no one else. However, to the conservative camp, the Bible says, and through the prophets, when they speak of those who frame injustice by statutes, by laws, who oppress the poor and care only for themselves. They're only concerned about their own personal well-being, not about the public good. So the Bible says it's not either or, right? That there are complex factors that go into poverty, those in need. And that God has a standard of what is right in both our personal spheres and in the sphere of public policy for those in power. And notice, over and over and over again in Psalm 72, it has to do with how the king rules rightly on behalf of the poor, the needy, those who have no helper, the weak and the vulnerable. Because God's justice is both retributive and restorative. Not either or, it's both and. Now here's, listen, here's where we need to be cautious. Because in, in the cultural quest for justice, right, both retributive and restorative aspects of justice, at times, separated from a biblical foundation, they become an end in and of themselves. 
They become an end in and of themselves, as if they were the great aim of our lives. The purpose for our existence. And listen, I'll just be real transparent with you. That's a part of my, part of my concern with regards to critical theory and the way that it frames up the conversation is that justice becomes an end in and of itself. But biblically, justice is not an end. Justice is a means to an end because biblically justice is the currency of the kingdom. It's a currency of God's kingdom. Now listen, in the same way that the United States Treasury, right, it produces pennies and it produces nickels and it produces dimes and quarters and ones and used to produce twos. Does it still make $2 bills? I don't know. I don't think so. But fives and tens and twenties and $100 bills. And all of these types of currency are spendable within the greater 50 states of the United States of America. They are the currency of our land, Right? And so you can go into the store and buy an ice cream cone, right, for $7, okay? <laughs> or you can go and buy a piece of bubble gum for a dollar, all right? So you can go in and you can use any combination of those coins and those bills as long as it adds up to that total. And you can spend that in order to, as a means to an end, right, in order to purchase something, in order to acquire something, right? Because money, right, is not an end in and of itself, Regardless of what you think about, I don't know if you guys ever watched DuckTales or your kids ever watched DuckTales, right? Scrooge McDuck used to swim through all of his money in the Big Ben. It's going back to my childhood there. But, right, regardless, right, Scrooge may have thought money was an end in and of itself, but it is not. It is a means to an end. And the same thing is true of justice when we talk about it being a, a currency of God's kingdom, it's not an end in and of itself, but a means to an end, right? That we, as we spend that currency of justice, as that currency is spent, then it produces something. We acquire something. And what we, what we see as we spend that currency is we see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What we're, Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Look at the description of the outcomes of justice in Psalm 72. In verse 3, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Verse 16, may there be an abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like grass of the field. Verses 5 and 7, may they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. Verse 7, in the day, his days, the king's days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. You see, justice is a means to bring about the fullness of God's kingdom that is reflective of God's character as the king that God has appointed, that the people have anointed, is now ruling and exercising God's justice. The currency of the kingdom. Listen, when the king rules with God's justice and righteousness, when he's spending that currency, the psalmist says in verse 6, may he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. I talked to my dad yesterday down in South Louisiana, and I just, you know, making small talk, having conversation. I kind of asked him, hey, what are you guys up to? 
He said, well, we're just sitting here watching it rain. I said, would you send some of it our way, right? He said, it's rained for the last three days. I cut the grass between the showers, but as the showers fell, what happened to that grass? It sprung up quickly. This past week, I was walking across this, our home here in Wood Creek is situated across the street from one of the green belts they left in the community. And it's got a creek on the backside with a tree line and a big field of grass, and I was walking through that field, which they call a green belt, right? Today, it's more like a brown belt. Uh, but I was walking through that field the other day. And as I walked through that field, I began to observe the same thing that happens every summer as I walk through that field whenever it's dry and crusty is that that North Texas black gumboy clay soil begins to contract. And as it begins to contract, what does it do? You know what it does. It opens up these massive fissures in the ground, these cracks, cracks big enough to, that dogs can fall in. Small children can get lost in those things, some of them, right? There's these large cracks that are fissures in the ground. And as I walk through that field, this verse, verse 6, may he be like the rain on the mown grass, like showers that come to water the earth, was turning over in the back of my mind. And I, this, this picture came into my mind of what it will be like whenever the bronze heavens burst and God does once again send rain to water the earth. And there's just slow, steady showers that fall upon that field that over the course of days or perhaps weeks as we receive rain, whenever the drought breaks, what happens is those cracks that were formed by the drought, by the dryness and contraction, they'll begin to expand again. As they begin to expand again, they close. The cracks close as the showers fall. And listen, church, I want to tell you something. The same is true when justice is spent as the currency of the kingdom and right rulings in relation to all these given circumstances that people find themselves in. When what is right in that instance is done is a part of the showers that fall upon the earth that begin to close up cracks not only in our lives personally but also in societies and in cultures. It begins to that, that what has contracted and cracked begins to expand and fill. Justice and righteousness fills our lives with the life-giving water of God's kingdom that causes lives to flourish, grass to grow, plants to bloom and blossom. That's what the psalmist says in verse 16, doesn't he? In verse 16, he asked that the rule of this just and righteous king, that under it, that people would blossom like the grass of the field. In the cities, right? Cities are a place where there aren't big fields. But in those fields, there are people who are planted in those cities. And that those people would flourish like the grass of the field. They would blossom and bloom. They would bear fruit because they're nourished by receiving protection and provision from the justice of the king which comes from God himself. That's a biblical perspective. Or at least a part of it on justice. This is not a biblical survey on the topic. This is what Psalm 72 is saying about the issue. So what do we do with all this then? i got two things for you as we close. First, 
first. Bless God for his justice. See, while verses 17 and 18, they're not related only to Psalm 72. In fact, most scholars say they're a doxology, right? A conclusion, blessing God for all of Psalm 42 to 72, that whole book that this one's a part of. So while they're not only related to Psalm 72, this closing verses of praise, they do provide, I think, a striking point of application for us. While God's to be blessed for everything recorded in Psalms 42 to 72, that includes His justice and righteousness. It includes His right rulings here in Psalm 72. We bless God for His justice when we see the oppressor crushed, and we bless God for His justice when we see the poor restored. Both. Right? We celebrate whenever evil is punished, and we celebrate whenever victims are restored. In verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, we read about this global reign of this king. It says, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the end of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. And may the kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Which causes us, it brings to mind the question, who is this king that expands the territorial reach of Israel that all nations would bow down to, that all nations would serve, that all nations would bless, that they would bring their treasures in and lay them down before him, that they would bend their knee to him, his enemies would lick the dust. Right, what an image, right? Bow down and just begin, not drink water with their tongues, but lick the dirt off the ground. How satisfying is that? Not very. Okay, I ate some mud pies as a kid. I can tell you they were not tasty. But so who is this king that we are to bless whenever we see the oppressor crust and whenever we see the poor restored and praise his name? Who is this king? The psalmist uses a number of different phrases from the sea to, to, to the river, speaking of the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth, all kings, all nations, to refer to the entire world, desert tribes, Tarshish, distant shores, Sheba, Seba. There are all these far-flung places and areas depicted here submitting to God's appointed king. Who is he? Listen, in the days of David and Solomon, they would have been praying this for the human kings of the united and then divided monarchies who were ascending into power. But much like the rest of the Old Testament, I want to tell you something this morning, church. The ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 72 was found in none of them. It was only found in one. One. And his name is Jesus Christ. See, in verses 8 through 11, did any king in Israel's history ever have this kind of reach and rule? The answer, in case you're wondering, is no. None of them did. But I want to tell you something, one will. In Revelation chapter 21, when we see the new Jerusalem coming down out of the heavens, this is what John sees and records. 
He says, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Now, John had just seen Jesus, right, on the throne, returns on the white horse, seated on the throne, ruling and reigning, God ushering in the fullness of His kingdom, heaven coming to earth. And when that happens, He says, every nation, every king would bring their wealth, would bring their glory, would bring their honor into this king. None of the kings in Israel's history ever fulfilled Psalm 72, but one day Jesus will. And I can tell you something too, that he began to do that at his birth. Because if you read in Matthew chapter 2, after he's born, what happens? Who comes to see this baby in the manger? Who comes? We three kings of Orient are, right? The wise men in Matthew chapter 2, they bring him gifts including what? Gold. Wealth. It begins there and it will end one day upon Christ's return. So we bless Jesus whenever we see God's justice being executed. Those who bring about oppression being crushed. And those who are being crushed being restored. We praise Jesus. May his name, verse 17, endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. Many, may people be blessed in him. All the nations call him blessed. Let me ask you another question. Did any king's name, his reputation endure forever? David, the greatest king that Israel had known. Even his reputation was tarnished by Bathsheba and Uriah. No king's reputation endured forever, but one has. Was any king ever called blessed by all the nations of the earth? And the answer is no. Did any king ever bless all the nations of the earth? The answer is no. In fact, every commentator I read this week on this passage, they pointed to this verse. In Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abram out To bless him, make him a great nation, to be a blessing to who? Himself and his folks, his kin, clan, and tribe? No, to all the nations of the earth. And that Psalm 72 is a part of the through line to that blessing that comes in Jesus Christ, who would be the king that would bless all the nations of the earth. So we bless Jesus for his justice. As he stands as the only king to bless all the nations of the earth. To close the cracks. To bring healing and restoration. But also one day to bring retribution and judgment. Not either or, both and. So we bless God for his justice. But second of all, and I'm done. That you rule your domain with justice. You rule your domain with justice. Now, I don't know any of you in here who have royal blood in you. If you do, I'd love to visit with you afterwards. Okay? But, 
as Stanley rightly mentioned to us last week, in the cultural mandate in Genesis chapter 1, God calls us to fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, He gives us dominion over the seas. He gives us dominion over the land. He gives us dominion over the air. He gives us dominion over the creatures below the waters. Right? What is that? Is that just describing these different aspects of creation? No, it's a way of saying all of creation. That God gives men and women dominion over all of creation. Now, you may not be of royal blood, right? But as C.S. Lewis reminded us in the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, to some degree, we're all princes and princesses, kings and queens, right? As we exercise this dominion that God has given us over creation. The dominion that God has entrusted to us that we ought to rule it with justice, with right rulings. And let me just tell you, a part of what that looks like in the church, a part of what that looks like in the church is this. Over the course of the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, there has been an abominable, grotesque distortion of justice within the Southern Baptist Convention as sexual abuse cases that arose in the churches were handled only in the churches and not reported to the governing authorities whom God has given the authority to judge. A part of what ruling our domains with justice looks like is whenever a crime is committed that we don't handle it as a matter of church discipline only, but we handle it as a matter of criminal law. Right? On the retributive side, but also on the restorative side. It means that in the church... The church ought to be the first people showing up in the cracks of society. The church ought to be the first people showing up in the fissures of the culture. As we rule our domain that God has given us and trusted to us with justice, making right rulings, right, that we exercise or that we, ex- we, we report things that deserve retributive justice, and we are part of restoring those areas that need restorative justice. And so when we see the poor, we don't say the government programs will take care of them. When we see the poor, we don't, those in need, we don't say somebody else will do that. When we see those who have no helper, they have no advocate, they have no voice, and no one to speak for them, the church ought to be the first one showing up in the cracks of culture, in the cracks of people's lives. To step into those needs and be like the king was in the Old Testament as a representative of God. And his justice bringing about healing, bringing about restoration in the broken, shattered places in people's lives. Whether that be the brokenness and the shattering they've experienced because of their own sin. Right? Because the truth is, we want to talk about the deserving poor and the undeserving poor, right? I want to tell you something, before God, all of us are undeserving poor. All of us. So whether it be because of their own sin, or whether it be because, of, whether it be because someone they've been sinned against by another, 
And their life has been shattered. Or whether it be their life has come unraveled because of a a, a natural disaster. Or a tragedy. That can't be linked to any one particular sin that they may have committed. Which is why this week whenever I got a text message from Roy City IS, an administrator in Roy City ISD saying, there's a family whose house burned down, can you guys help? I said, yes, that's a part of closing the cracks, church. Part of closing the cracks. So in the church, we ought to handle those things that need retributive justice in this era with the appointed means that God has given, the governing authorities in our land. But we also not, we, at the same time, we don't entrust restorative justice to the governmental agencies and authorities because the church ought to be the first one showing up in those spaces. That's what we do with this. We bless God for his justice. We praise Jesus because he's the ultimate king, the true king who exercises true justice that is God's justice and blesses all the nations of the earth, including us, all the peoples of the world, including you and including me. And then we rule our domain, our homes, our families, our neighborhoods, our communities. We rule it, that domain, with justice. Don't buy every cultural bait that's dangled in front of you as justice. Go back to the Bible and say, what does the Scripture say? Because the Scriptures speak a lot on this issue, and this is just one place. I want to pray for us this morning as we close that we would be a church marked by this in this place that God has planted us. Would you join me? Father, this morning, we acknowledge that we all deserve your retributive justice on account of our sin. There is not a soul in this room that can stand before you and declare their innocence and say that they have never violated your law, that they've never committed a sin against you. But that, Father, each of us in this room must stand before you and say, We are guilty as charged. May you be gracious to us in Christ. To know that your justice, your retributive justice should have fallen on us is a humbling thought. But those of us in this room this morning who are in Christ as recipients of your restorative justice, as Christ was crushed in our place so that we might be healed by his stripes. Father, would you make us agents of that same restorative justice in the cracks of our culture, in the cracks of people's lives, in the broken places that they think can never be healed? May we not stand back and say someone else We'll take responsibility for that. But may we be the first to move in. The first to care. The first to say their blood is precious in our sight. The first to be an advocate for those who have no helper. The first to use our voices to speak up for those who are voiceless. 
Father, as we do, may it be like showers that fall to water the earth. And it causes peoples in the cities to blossom. As your kingdom come, as your will is done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning,